0: Hey guys this is emmett welcome to exhaust your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible today i am here with phil cunliffe from alpha bunga bunga how's it going phil
1: i'm good thanks emmett i'm delighted to be here thanks for the invitation
0: absolutely delighted to have you so a few weeks ago i think it was like two or three now i can't remember it's been such a blur a very smooth evac of Kabul was going on and you wrote a piece about how well it was going and I thought, gee, I should have Phil on to talk about this because nothing will happen in the two weeks from when I send this invite to when we talk about it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, your prediction was obviously borne out entirely accurately, so.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so that's the end of the episode, guys. Join us <laughs> next. With, but no, you wrote a really thoughtful piece in uh, Spiked about the contradictions of what played out in Afghanistan between the sort of un- or anti-statist- ambitions of neoliberalism and then the nation-building efforts such as they were in Afghanistan and how we sort of like watched that all unravel in real time. Yeah. With this event. So,
1: yeah, I mean, well, it was it's exactly that, I suppose, is it's trying. The piece was written in Spiked and it was about the fall of Kabul. It came out. So Kabul fell on the 15th to the Taliban and the piece was written in the aftermath of that. And it was precisely... Trying to think through that juxtaposition of Western societies that have been dominated by neoliberal politics and economics for the last 30 years, 40 years, if you know, maybe longer, trying to construct a coherent functioning state and society, trying to export a model into a very um, poor and backwards and war-torn country, and indeed doing so in a militarized way. I mean, you know, nation building at the point of a gun. And he was trying to think through about what does it look like when you, what are the contradictions of that process? What does it look like when you build, when you're a neoliberal state, a neoliberal empire in effect? I mean, you know, I think it's legitimate to call, to say that Afghanistan was de facto an imperial project, and what does it look like when you try and build a coherent functioning state and society given essentially a commitment, a political commitment, to being hostile to state power and public authority within your own country? How does that play out? So that was what I was, you know, I mean, in broad brushstrokes, what I was trying to think through in the aftermath of the fall of Kabul.
0: Right. And one of the things that you talked about is So here's how I have it in my mind, is that in the Cold War, global development becomes a sort of byword for how America decides to run some of its international engagements, right? And David Lilienthal, who was one of the spearheads of the Tennessee Valley Authority um, and who was the first commissioner of the Atomic Energy Commission, becomes sort of like the czar of global development. But then after the fall of the Cold War, something else happens. And this new narrative of like failed states comes in. And so I'd wonder if you could sort of like walk us through what the 90s ideology is um, and how that shifts once we get into the 2000s.
1: Yeah. So, you know, this is a, this isn't a compressed version, but the basic story, as far as I understand it is this, you know, this is my take is in the aftermath of the, it, with the end of the Cold War, it was a vindication, obviously, of Western capitalist states over the command economies of the old Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Bloc, and also the Chinese economy that had already was already going through its reform, opening up process. And so, in that period, it was also a vindication of neoliberalism, and the way in which that victory, the seal on that victory, was essentially reorganizing the collapsed
0: societies of the Eastern Bloc and also broad terms. I mean, those countries,
1: you know, neoliberalism through various, through processes, the structural adjustment, through the oversight of international financial institutions, and also sometimes directly through direct political interference in the form of Western military intervention, which became increasingly recurrent over this process, sorry, over this period, led to the reorganization of these of these societies and around expanded role for the market by privatize, you know, privatizing great swathes of what had previously been in um, large part state-dominated economies, and trying to l- build societies that were mimic the Western model with multi-party competition, and the process was very, as you might imagine, um, it was very disruptive. So, say, introducing multi-party elections in the aftermath of a civil war in an African state where you have such intense polarisation and also as well as all the kind of uh, maladies of economic backwardness and so on is not a recipe for success as it didn't, you know, didn't turn out to be. The notion that you could kind of bomb countries to bring them human rights as if you could drop human rights from the air or as if human rights travelled at the end of a cruise missile or came with a cluster bomb, you know, that obviously was also also didn't work. And so and the economic disruption of uh, so-called shock therapy, the dramatic and fast and rapid reorganization around market based economies, turned out also to be so kind of traumatizing and disruptive that by the end of the 1990s, before the terror attacks of 2001, it was understood that western states had effectively overreached that the consequences of the shock therapy and the humanitarian intervention and the military kind of and also the sanctions regimes was so kind of devastating and disruptive and that it produced as many problems in its way as it was you know as they were intended to resolve at the start and so out of that out of that recoil came the idea of state building or nation building in kind of more popular parlance, so that if we're going to have functioning societies, if we're going to be able to have functioning market economies that are efficient and effective and that can be kind of plugged into the global economy and that will deliver development um, and economic growth and prosperity to people in these countries, you need a state. You need some kind of centralized authority, some kind of framework, some system of regulation and law and order. You need a police force. You know, it has to obviously have like the appropriate gender and human rights training, but you need strong kind of state structures in order to undergird the kinds of societies we want to build. And so this is where, so nation building was already emerging before the terror attacks of 9-11 and before the US intervention in Afghanistan later that year. So this is the origin of nation building. It was in response to an earlier political failure that came uh, out of the out of Western triumph in the first decade after the end of the Cold War.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's long past the point that we turned to nation building that we have basically said that dirigist economics aren't real and in fact, they're actually harmful. And yeah. that was part of what the 90s vision, I guess, the overstepping was um, all about, as you say. And I think to me, what's dark about that isn't just the impact that it has on these countries, which is catastrophic, as you say, but I think that it created this like feedback loop that allowed the United States to also unravel its own constitution as it was doing this. Like who... Really thinks that in the age of large scale, weird, totally black box social media bureaucracies, that like free speech is the same and as secure as it was before that, right? Or yeah. things like that. And or you know, the surveillance element alone creates a huge infringement there. And it really seems like it's a victory defeats us moment for America in the post Cold War world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is the argument of the piece that I wrote for Spiked was, you know, so I mean, a lot of, you know, I mean, understandably, a lot of the focus in the aftermath of uh, the fall of Kabul was based on the intrinsic weaknesses of the Afghan state, you know, uh, kind of various analyses of Afghan society, the fact that it's so facipero, divided between different ethnic groups, ethnic um, Pashtuns, uh, Uzbeks, Tajiks, and so on, and that this is, you know, that this is the problem. You can't kind of build a modern state in a society that is so strongly segmented around traditional kinship ties. And so, you know, obviously, I mean, as a lot of, you know, I mean, I don't wish to deny the fact that those are important elements, but it seemed to me that if you're trying to account for the fall of an empire, You don't look in the province you Mm -hmm. have to kind of locate those problems in the imperial core and so this is what i tried to do and so very much taking your point i mean that you just said now about the you know that it's kind of uh, a defeat for the us and the way in which the you know us us society or the us state has evolved in the era of nation building i wanted to see what afghanistan would tell us about that so I don't claim any particular expertise on the, you know, kind of inter-ethnic relations in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. There are people who know much more about that than I do, but rather I wanted to draw attention to a wider kind of imperial order and what it tells us about the nature of the U.S. state as well, the fall of the the fall of the Afghan state.
0: Right. I mean, I couldn't help but thinking about uh, something I heard on your podcast when you interviewed Julius Krein over at American Affairs. Because he had found himself in one of the many, you know, K Street boondoggles over there in which I think he was tasked with creating like the Silicon Valley of the Middle East, which resulted into installing a few routers and then having teenage boys show up to crank their hog to Pornhub and then leave their offices as soon as they were done. I mean, that seems like for... A nation that has so given itself to managers, it is amazing how unmanaged literally everything seems to be in this story.
1: Yeah. And it's even, I mean, uh, there's a detail that you omitted from the anecdote that Julius provided for us on the show, which is that the those kids who were coming to, to the internet cafe he set up as part of, F, you know, Kabul, Silicon Valley or whatever, they were the Sons of Warlords as well.
0: Yes, that's so right.
1: So it was uh, the Sons of Warlords were coming to a US-sponsored internet cafe, which was also, I think, actually it had to be routed through iran you know so america's kind of mortal other mortal enemy in the region they were dependent on iranian internet in order to allow the sons of warlords Access to the best of Western contemporary culture. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, the paradoxes—you know—the paradoxes just abound. And it's striking. I mean, you mentioning that because it brings to mind two—you know—two uh, peers of mine from my graduate days in various institutions. I know two. Well, I know two peers. I mean, they weren't close friends; they were acquaintances more than anything. Colleague, you know, kind of colleagues-ish. Who who died in Afghanistan. One was killed uh, by a mine, and another was killed by a suicide. Blast in an internet in an internet cafe, or rather a cafe frequented by Westerners in Kabul, and I'm just I'm mentioning that only you know. I mean, I, there's nothing no there's nothing particular about me, but the fact that me as an average Western academic knows has two peers who died as part of the nation-building effort in Afghanistan tells you just how committed an entire cadre of Western technocrats and aid policy experts and developmental experts and international relations scholars and academics and theorists. You know, I mean, this was a huge, it was a huge project. So many people, so many swathes of highly trained, highly educated people devoted and gave their lives to this you know, sprawling trillion dollar boondoggle, like you say, with so many kind of bizarre paradoxes bound up with it. It really is. It really is something.
0: Right. So I went back and and took a, took a look and in 2006, you wrote another piece for Spiked on Afghanistan, I think called whatever happened to the good war, what happened to the good war. And in it, you identified something that like plagued me as someone who was coming of age watching this happen you know and it was that the western allies engaged in the war in afghanistan which was supposed to be the good war as opposed to iraq which everyone like that didn't pass the smell test for almost anybody but you could justify afghanistan as like self defense after 911 yeah. that no one seemed to know what their goals were and they seemed to be generating those goals through the fighting itself yeah. so i was wondering like what you noticed from then till now about maybe the shifts in justifications or like what the outside America perspective perspective was of this like what we were calling a forever war because we just never thought we would leave
1: yeah so I wish I had come across you know I wish I had kind of had the imagination at the time in 2006 to call it the forever war or kind of point in that direction Because the dynamic that I tried to draw attention to in that was so, you know, this is long before it's worth remembering. I mean, 2006, it was long before Osama bin Laden was killed. So he was still alive. But even then, they had such great difficulty in justifying the war effort. So the initial kind of war aims had been to kind of extirpate Al-Qaeda and overthrow their allies, the Taliban. They did this in short order, very quickly. And then, you know, but the war continued. Osama bin Laden hadn't been killed, but they had to find another justification for a military presence in Afghanistan. And so this became, it was very evident early on that it was a war without purpose, effectively, um, because their initial purpose had been achieved. But because they weren't able to put together an Afghan, you know, a functioning Afghan state that would allow them to withdraw, it meant, obviously, they, you know, the military occupation had to continue. And then it had to find nation building justifications, essentially, to legitimize the Western, the NATO and the US presence in Afghanistan. And so they became developmental, a kind of militarized developmentalism. So we're here for the sake of women's rights. We're here to get kids to school. All the things that George, the president of the time, George Bush, his national security advisor, Condoleezza Rice, all the things, in fact, that she had scorned during George Bush's election campaign in um, 2000, 1999, when he had, you know, kind of, they'd said uh, the 82nd Airborne isn't there to escort kids to kindergarten. In mm-hmm. fact, that became exactly the role of the 82nd Airborne. You know, the US military was involved in, you know, protecting Afghan girls as they go to school. So it was a bizarre turnaround for the Bush administration, and it was the way in which the... Initial kind of, I suppose, you know, isolationist in quote, in scare quotes, instincts of the Republicans were overwhelmed by the demands of the American kind of imperial war machine, essentially and that it turned into this endless military operation with no goal. And the other element that I mentioned in that piece, and I think this is also worth kind of thinking about a bit, is the fact that kind of the names they gave for these operations. So the military operations, you know, traditionally, they used to kind of have these completely banal and generic names, like, I don't know, Blue Spoon and these kinds mm-hmm. of things. You know, If you go back to the Second World War, they all have totally kind of random names to disguise the operational intent, you know. But by the time you get to the war on terror, they all have these names, which are kind of clear attempts to kind of puff up the Western war effort. You know, so famously, the operation which was designed to kind of capture Osama bin Laden was called Anaconda because they were encircling the mountain complex in which the Al-Qaeda leader was holed up. And they gave, I mean, they had other kind of absurd examples of the names they gave, which were always kind of. You know, kind of the names that kind of a teenager who spent too much time playing computer games and, you know, reading comic books would come up for for his operations,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: mm-hmm. and so it was, I, I think it was a tell. So the way in which US military operations were named during the period of the forever wars was a tell about the difficulty that they had in providing any kind of intrinsic justification for the overall war effort and the fact that it had to be kind of dressed up in this facile adolescent language, you know, as if the only way they could get hard, if I may use that language, you know, if I may use that term is to kind of find these absurd pretentious teenage names for their war for the war effort.
0: Yeah. I mean, there seems to be a sort of perpetual adolescence to the whole thing, even the exit. On our latest Patreon episode, I talked with another guest about, I think this Lieutenant Colonel out in the Marine Corps who went on Facebook to be like, you know, the upper ends of our command, like really fuck this up. Like, you know, they need to come forward. And it becomes clear, like, as you watch this guy get published, it would get punished because of course, he was wearing his uniform while he did it. That he really had like no plan. Yeah, you know, it wasn't like he had gotten a bunch of other people in the officer corps together. Yes. To be like, this is what we're going to do is like he expected it to be like the end of V for Vendetta. Yeah. Where, like everybody puts on the Guy Fox masks and walks into the street into Parliament, and then yeah. suddenly democracy is here again. Yeah. You know, I might sound like reactionary conservative to say this, but there's been a sort of death of like responsibility culture in America where it's like everyone's a manager, no one's in charge, you know, everyone kind of covers for each other. I think the best way you characterize that in the piece was your nod to Horkheimer's idea of the racket economy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so this is, I guess, that kind of directs, you know, it directs us back to the point I made earlier, which is about the, and I think it's, so the inability to assume kind of political responsibility is, isn't, I think, I mean, it's not simply kind of a moral failing, as I suppose, as a conservative might be inclined to 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 say and nor is it restricted to any particular individual so it runs deeper and i think it is connected to neoliberalism in the sense that it is explicitly designed you know as a as a system of uh, government it's explicitly designed to repress the idea of public power it's intrinsically hostile to the idea of central organized authority you know like famously i mean you know ronald reagan is kind of the the way part of the way in which he kind of popularized some of those ideas was you know the what is it the nine most dangerous words in the english language i'm from the government and i'm here to help mm-hmm. right and so and i mean you know it's not to it's not to dismiss i mean government you know the state is is scary and state bureaucracies are scary but the nonetheless the effect of the effect of neoliberalism was to repress not only the institutions of government and to contain and limit their scope and remit but also to disperse the idea of centralized authority itself, that it should be substituted with the spontaneous working of the market. And if you're committed to that idea and if you organize your public life around it and if you organize your institutions around it, it obviously becomes very difficult to assert any kind of vision or leadership or capacity or will to shape society or politics in a conscious direction. It becomes so much more difficult to do that. And so, you know, the, I mean, I agree with you entirely about the lack of, you know, the political lack of responsibility, the inability to assume leadership and authority, and those are systemic problems. They're not problems of, you know, a particular kind of leadership cadre.
0: Right, exactly. And that, I mean, that's what was so telling about that moment to me, is that yeah. it was a synecdoche for yes. something that I think I felt I've seen everywhere, especially as coronavirus, Yes, in, indeed. Yeah, um, Where it was, I mean, you, just, you guys just had Adam Tuzon for a fantastic a duet of interviews to talk about that. And that, you know, this is something that I've sensed through. I mean, I've, I've listened to tons of episodes of you talking basically, and I've read many of your articles. I haven't yet gotten to the book, but I will. And there's a sense, a kinship I have with your thought is that some sort of idea of sovereignty needs to be re-articulated because there's no way in which in this moment politics as such can be understood as a human endeavor without it. And so much of what we see in Afghanistan, as you say, points to problems in the center, not the periphery, and that seems to be endemic to what's happening here. I mean, I can tell you living within America, it feels like no one, like everyone's asleep at the wheel yeah. in the White House, you know, no one really knows what the plan is for society. And I was wondering if you could talk about the idea of the nation and national sovereignty, because I think some people would find that surprising to hear out of someone who sees himself on the left.
1: Yeah absolutely and the i think i mean i'd agree with you absolutely that the one of the central issues is that i that there is no possibility i think of human emancipation without the idea of sovereignty it is the most basic commitment to the idea of human conscious kind of human authority the possibility of self-government and self-rule As opposed to, say, divine authority or other form or technocratic authority or other forms of authority that are not committed or that are not as defined in the idea of a secular political power that is separate from other spheres of social life. Mm -hmm. And that if you don't have that idea of sovereignty, then it is impossible to have a meaningful idea of politics. And I think this was, you know, this manifested itself in Afghanistan in a very particular way, because obviously, you know, they, so I mean, I mean, I don't know how many of your listeners will recall this, but I mean, right at the beginning of the American intervention in Afghanistan in 2001, you know, there was lots of stuff about it. it's about oil pipelines, and there'd be these think pieces published with, you know, showing kind of all these, I don't know, these kind of
0: Halliburton, you know, that was the big thing. Yes, Everybody Halliburton, was like, it's all yes. Halliburton. And this exactly. importantly, the whole Enron thing happens. Yes. While this goes on, and the relationship between the Bush family and Ken yes. Lay yes. is like yes. highly visible, yeah. and we're having for the first time our debates around climate change and fossil yes. fuel. So yes. this all characterizes in like Bush era leftism, let's say. Absolutely,
1: and it's and I think that's important to remember because you know the the instinct of the left, and I succumbed to it too for a while, was that the you know the Americans want to be there that there are deep abiding interests in the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, you know, the, uh, I don't know, and there was even more absurd, you know, so if there are no, if there is no actual oil, you know, then it's about oil pipelines. And if you can't, you know, if you kind of can't get enough out of the oil pipelines, then it's about some other kind of minerals. I don't know, whatever, you know, so, I mean, and, but that, you know, it wasn't accurate. They would have liked for
0: there to be some imperialism and all the imperialism.
1: (laughs) Yeah, indeed. I mean, you know, and it's, uh, it's something, you know, which has been, you know, people have drawn attention to it, not least uh, Donald Trump, but also what's his face, a Palantir guy. Um, Oh, Peter Thiel. Yeah, Peter Thiel, you know, he wrote a piece where he drew attention, you know, like this is kind of it's this totally bizarre kind of altruism almost kind of driving these imperial projects where there is the disavowal of any interest. Interest itself is seen as illegitimate. But the point being that they, you know, so they were trying to leave Afghanistan, but they couldn't leave until they set up kind of. Institutions that would function on their own that wouldn't require life support or military, you know, the kind of that they wouldn't be just dependent on the US military. However, right, it's very hard. To build those institutions, if you're if you understand if you understand yourself as incapable, which is to say the Afghans, if you if they understand themselves as incapable of asserting their claims as an independent nation except by reference to Western humanitarianism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the justification for the US war effort was to defend the human rights of Afghans against the rapacious fundamentalist Taliban, to defend the rights of Afghan women, to defend the rights of Afghan girls, to defend the human rights rights of ordinary Afghanis against these the kind of the fanatics and it's very difficult to build an independent state out of human rights victims right by definition because Mm. they are victims they are passive they're incapable they're dependent they're weak you know Mm. that's the that's the nature of victimhood and so this was the contradiction they were caught in that it was impossible to build, you know, the independent state that they wanted to build so that they could leave Afghanistan and was impossible to build on the terms in which they were engaged, which is that it's, in, you know, you can't have a sovereign state if you're committed to a neoliberal idea. Of uh, social organization, and if the justification for your, you know, for uh, building an ind- for building an Afghan state is to protect human rights victims, and if the justification for your presence there is protection of human rights victims, because that's a justification for forever war, and so it's, in, you know, they were caught in this bind, and this is why, you know, it ascend, you know, it ultimately all crumbled. So. The, that is, I think, I mean, that is how sovereignty ties in to the question of Afghanistan. They wanted to build an independent state, but they have no, there is no commitment to the idea of sovereignty. I think, I don't think any country has a meaningful commitment to the idea of sovereign independent statehood in the world today. And so in that world, it is impossible to build institutions of functioning independent government. It's impossible for Afghans to assert, to assert the rights of self-government in that world if their entire society and state has been reorganized around the concepts of dependence, vulnerability, and human rights. And out of that bind, you know, the only people who win in that situation is, uh, is indeed the, the religious fanatics.
0: It's sort of dizzying to see all of this play out. So one of your, I think, colleagues, I believe, Frank Ferrati, who we've had on the show, and you know, he wrote wonderful defense of democracy, and before that, an articulation of the culture of fear, as he calls it, which I think captures a lot of this human rights language and seemed to capture a lot of how we discussed like the biopolitics of coronavirus, let's say. you know, No one can die, but we're not gonna do basic cost-benefit analysis, things like that. And I bring this all back to the idea of the victim as if there is like a world subject other than central banks, I think it is whoever gets to be the victim, right? Because so much of politics gets built around that now because it's very like convenient for all sorts of other things. So first of all, you can immediately install like NGOs that care about that. Immediately you need like managers and regulators to protect and look at that. Perhaps you even need a shield of violence, great for defense contractors. And the most important part is that it remains minoritarian because you can always subdivide groups of victims. And there is nothing that bespeaks a sort of citizen civic ethics. Around which to constitute a public, because yeah. everything is harm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I don't think there is anything I would add to the picture of just how. I suppose the I would only kind of draw the the kind of the the in you know, logic of what you're saying is that it's deeply authoritarian.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely.
1: Precisely in the way that it empowers. It empowers technocracy, it empowers all sorts of means of regulation and state power that are cut off from any sense of responsibility, accountability and popular will. And so and I think I mean this is the broader argument. I don't specifically make it in the spiked piece on the fall of Kabul But the broader argument is the one that I would push towards is that human rights is the ideology of perpetual war
0: Yeah, that is
1: what we you know That is the lesson that I think we have to accept in the aftermath of the fall of Kabul So when when we hear the kind of the cry go up to defend the human rights of Afghan women, for instance, you know, that is, that is a recipe for more perpetual war and to defend the rights of Afghans. Ultimately, I mean, ultimately that is something that can only be done by the Afghans themselves. And that is something which is uh, deeply anathema to contemporary politics. I think the idea of self-help, the idea of Mm -hmm. political self-sufficiency and also the terrible, you know, the terrible truth, which And I'm not even sure that the lesson will be learned in the aftermath of Kabul. But the terrible truth that the um, you cannot organize global politics around the idea of American rescue, you know, so the idea that there is somewhere, you know, the America, if you just happen to catch enough attention, if you get a piece in The New York Times or you get a U.N. resolution passed or if you get enough NGOs on side, or if you get the congressman to say something here or there or to tweet something, you know, that the, the Americans will come to your rescue. That is, uh, you know, a terrible myth which has condemned many, many millions of people to all sorts of horrors over the last 30 years from Iraq to Libya to Afghanistan and other countries too. And I would, if, you know, if there is any good to come out of the fall of Kabul, I would like it to be that that the idea that we can organize politics around global politics around the idea of american rescue that there is some ultimate kind of backstop which you can rely upon the 82nd airborne or american marines to come to your defense ultimately Mm -hmm. um, because it's a recipe for never taking charge of your own situation for never taking responsibility and it is in fact you know a world without sovereignty you never seek to assert control over your own society, your own situation, your own country, you always depend on someone else to, to rescue you. And it's, that is the, that is a world of perpetual war, which is what we've had.
0: Right. And I think, I don't think, I think there seems to be, maybe I'm being overly generous here, a general misunderstanding that like rights need to be enforced. So if like you invoke them, someone's going to arrive to enforce them. Right. And if you're saying global human rights, well, the only person that the only body capable of enforcing that is going to be the most militarily powerful country in the world. That's going to redound to the whims of the United States elite. And it seems like the dog is off the leash in some ways too. If we look at how the United States military even reorganized itself in the wake of 9-11, and of course, just before that happened, the Rumsfeld Doctrine of contracting things out, you know, there's all sorts of air gaps in accountability that exist in the system now. And that has been legally created through many layers of obfuscation, both personnel-wise and other means through the creation of things like JSOC. Yeah, the United States is like, okay, it seems like we get bad press if we put boots on the ground because of course, US troops die when that happens in an armed conflict. But we can send a bunch of Delta guys who no one really knows about and just keep them perpetually engaged in gray area conflicts that of course are incapable of providing any sort of order that would turn into peace.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think this is—I mean, this is uh, this has deep roots. So, I, there's a number of dimensions there that I think are worth kind of drawing out. Which is the the case with sovereignty isn't just to protect. You know, it's not just a kind of a shield for for the for formerly colonized for formerly colonized countries or weaker countries, and it's not just a the possibility of self-government in the developing world. It's also a precondition for mm-hmm. responsible government mm-hmm. in the West itself, and obviously in the U.S. Because mm-hmm. the point of you know an imperial war machine on the scale that the U.S. has is that it is ultimately impossible to contain that, and to limit it, and to bend it to public purpose within the U.S. itself. Mm-hmm. It becomes, it provides, it ends up by providing its own kind of justification for for war and conflict. And ultimately, human rights is a way of it provides the kind of the discourse and the justification for repressing, if at least at the very least, ignoring or putting, you know, kind of putting to one side the rights of your own citizens Mm -hmm. in favor of others. And so and I mean, this was most this was most sharply expressed with with Libya. So with Hmm. the Obama intervention in Libya, because there there was, you know, they just they used the United Nations authorization for intervention as a way of sidestepping the need for congressional approval. And it illustrated in a single kind in that single instant, it illustrated the logic of human rights, the way in which it operates against to subvert accountability and also to subvert the idea of democratic popular will. And so that was, you know, that's the logic of human rights. That there is a body that can provide a justification for war that is independent of uh, the U.S. Constitution, but also the actual, you know, bodies of elected representatives to decide on whether or not the U.S. should go to war. And that has been the story, effectively, of the forever war and the way in which human rights can be invoked to justify war, which is independent of of any national self-interest, right? Because if you have, you know, if there is a national self-interest, you have to justify it to your citizens. Why are we doing these things? Right. Mm -hmm. But if it's a war, which is altruistic, it's a war on behalf of others who, by their definition, you know, by definition, are weak and powerless and dependent. And they'll never be able to hold you to account because they're so weak and powerless, Afghan women, for instance, you can go to war forever. Right. Mm -hmm. You can always find another victim. You can always find another kind of uh, beleaguered minority, another um, ethnic group in dire straits, another marginal group. And they will never be able to hold you to account the way your citizens can. And you can always go to war on their behalf without needing to check with your own citizens as to what justifies this this tremendously, you know, this tremendous kind of exercise in blood and treasure and destruction. Mm-hmm. And the I other.
0: Go oh, yeah. ahead, please, please.
1: Well, it was just quickly to add to the point you were making about special forces and technology. One thing which is very evident and striking in the Forever War and Afghanistan in particular is the fact that there is. There is no bargain implicit in the war effort. And the fact that they rely so heavily on these, you know, t- on drones, on technology, on these tiny elite special units, you know, that the U.S. forces were stretched so thin that they were famously deploying uh, reservists and depl- redeploying units past, you know, what was considered... Yeah,
0: the stop-loss program, yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. All of that indicated the unwillingness of the U.S. elite to, to offer, you know, their unwillingness to kind of embed the war effort in any kind of meaningful social contract, that there would be no dividend or political benefits that U.S. society was not expected to pay a cost effectively. And because they were unwilling to offer anything, you know, there's a basic unwillingness to offer anything to this to their own citizens, a basic unwillingness, the idea that there should be political improvement. That the citizenry could hold them to account, you we went to war, you promised us this, why don't we have it? There was none of that, right? Mm-hmm. It was simply something to be kind of you know the closest it came was when George Bush told everyone after nine eleven to go out shopping, yeah. you know so the reinforce the consumer experience, the idea that it was going to be some kind of deeper public commitment that there would be a bargain or a trade off for the cost that society paid for it, that was never on the cards, and I think that's an important element of the whole character of the forever war is how far it was intended to disable the possibility of any kind of improved political improvement as well. And that's a telling aspect, I think, of the whole enterprise.
0: Right. There seems to be a big decoupling from the American tradition of republicanism in how this all played out. I have maybe more of an abstract, perhaps sort of cultural question to ask you that has been on my mind, reflecting on the last 20 years of living in America as this war has gone on. And I wanted to open by reading a brief paragraph from an essay that Joan Didion wrote on America after 9-11, and this is the closing paragraph. She says, in the early 1980s, I happened to attend at a conservative political action conference in Washington, a session called Rolling Back the Soviet Empire. One of the speakers that day was a kind of adventurer slash ideologue named Jack Wheeler, who was very much of the moment because he had always just come back from spending time with our freedom fighters in Afghanistan, also known as the Mujahideen. I recall that he received a standing ovation after urging that copies of the Quran be smuggled into the Soviet Union to quote unquote stimulate an Islamic revival and the subsequent death of a thousand cuts we all saw that idea come
1: home it's a great quote I never I've never read the essay so I will have to I will have to go and do that
0: you can Um, find it on the NYRB thing as I think it's called like something like Fixed Opinions, Afghanistan and the Hinge of History, or 9-11 and the Hinge of History or something like that. And it got published in its own little standalone essay that's now out of print called Fixed Ideas. But I brought that up because one of the things that she tackles in that piece, and as I consider you to be something of a historian, or at least have some historical training, there seems to be a total contraction of historical memory. i Again, I'm provincial, I've never left the United States. So maybe it's not like this elsewhere, but it seems like that is so true to my understanding of first of all, our involvement, our launch into Afghanistan and our involvement there is that there seemed to be like an almost annual or semi-annual reset button on our conceptions of what was happening, that we'd ever been involved there, that there were any consequences at all to anything the United States might do abroad. It was, I guess, the distinction between reality, as Karl Rove might understand it, as this thing that the United States could alter at its will because it was so powerful, and history, which has some kind of, however abstruse, cause and effect in terms of what you do. And that's been, I think, very absent from any understanding of current politics. And I was wondering if you had any insights into that.
1: Yeah, the, so I mean, I'd say, I suppose, the, that story of the, the US jihadi nexus which stretches back to the you know i mean you could even stretch it back as far as say fdr's meeting with the ibn saud the saudi king who established the kingdom of saudi arabia in the 1940s and so the kind of the way in which the americans as they rose to global prominence cultivated muslim fundamentalism and then with the mujahideen cultivated in particular a particular kind of especially you know pointed reactionary islamism You know, that story, I think, is still to be told, and it wasn't restricted to Afghanistan. I mean, this was very much a part of the it was very much a part of the 1990s. Part of the victory over the Cold War was the globalization of jihadism. So the CIA famously channeled uh, Mujahideen form, you know, people they knew their own agents. In fact, you know, they channeled them to support the U.S., uh, the U.S. kind of uh, sponsored Bosnian Muslims and later in Kosovo. So, you know, they were in the Balkans. And even more recently, obviously, the U.S. has heavily supported jihadi and jihadi-affiliated militias to overthrow the Syrian government as part of the Syrian civil war, even while it's fighting, you know, people, you know, I mean, this it's on the one hand, it's supporting people who have celebrated the Taliban takeover. So in Syria, you know, the groups support, the, the U.S. supports are celebrating the Taliban takeover at the same time as the U.S. is fighting the Taliban and bombing them, you know, and retreating from Afghanistan and so on. So I think that story of that kind of the, kind, you know, in some ways, it's kind of a civil war internal to the U.S. empire itself. And I mean, I, I tweeted a couple of weeks ago that. You know, if you came to, if you'd given the script of 9-11 to a Hollywood producer, they would have thrown it out for being so hackneyed and cliched. Mm-hmm. You know, CIA agent Osama bin Laden goes rogue, launches a terror attack on the US, and it all goes very badly and turns into this <laughs> rolling global war. You know, like, yeah. they would have thrown, you know, they would have, so reality really was stranger than fiction in that case. And there is, you know, I mean, in some ways, you know, the whole thing is that. It's like a, a CIA the whole mujahideen the whole kind of islamist thing if you wanted to explain it in terms that are internal to the american empire it's essentially that it's a cia outfit that goes rogue and that kind of you know blows up in the face of the technocrats uh, the bureaucratic securecrats and planners who are trying to manipulate this incredibly crude and volatile instrument of for their own for their own purposes as to your point about historical amnesia It's something which is, continues to puzzle me to a degree, and I don't have, I don't have a, I don't have a straightforward answer to it. I think, I mean, it's partly connected to, I think, the failure to, properly identify what our problems are and to respond to them in effective ways. So, you know, like, what is it that was, I mean, what is it that is, what was at stake in Afghanistan? And what is the problem of being in Afghanistan? You know, what is, by which I mean, for instance, is the problem, you know, that they were, is the problem with the U.S. presence in Afghanistan that they were killing too many civilians? Was the problem that they didn't know why they were there? Was the problem that they didn't kind of, they didn't commit enough that if they'd poured in more resources and more troops, they would have won. I think it's this inability to identify problems effectively. That means that we're constantly kind of uh, stumbling around from uh, crisis to crisis without any sense of what the of what the continuity is in terms of the actual historical process, like you say, of cause and effect. And a lot of the, you know, some of this is ideological. So you know, the idea that you can... So, you know, the idea that you can kind of bomb countries to bring them human rights, any any 12-year-old child could tell you there's some basic kind of problems of cause and effect there, like you say, yeah. but, you know, if you think in human rights terms, it makes perfect sense, you know, mm-hmm. so if you have, if you look at it from the human rights framework, the idea the situation is so extreme that military force is justified and that rights can be delivered by external authorities handed to you on a platter effectively, it begins to make sense. So I can't give you, I'm afraid I can't give you a more precise answer than that. But I suspect the problem lies in the way in which we ideologically obfuscate the issues before us.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I mean, I don't have any... If I had solid answers on it, I would have been asking you, no offense. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, so here's another thing. We were talking before about like Bush era leftism, which by the way, there's a very funny Twitter account that does nothing but tweet out artifacts from that era of Uh, culture and the the internet. Yeah, it's got some great gems in there. It is exceedingly cringe, I must say. But I wanted to ask you this. You know, obviously, you know, when I was growing up, I never heard the word capitalism ever until like 2008. Right. You know, it seems to me like there have been great changes, but especially changes in how we view left and right and polarization. And I was wondering if you could talk about either how, uh, you've seen the left evolve as, you know, whatever it is now, I mean, it seems very diffuse and kind of vague to me and also like how your own thinking has changed from the beginning of Afghanistan to its closure?
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I suppose I'd answer in two ways. So I can speak to the changing kind of character of left and right in the context of my own country, Britain, and the politics of the last few years, because I think it gives very sharp insights that perhaps might not be evident elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Given Britain's recent the politics surrounding Britain's secession from the European Union, which was only achieved in early 2020, despite the vote having the vote to leave having happened in 2016. As for Afghanistan, I mean I've been a critic of human rights and humanitarian intervention for a very long time, because and that's, you know, not based on any special on any special kind of intellectual insight, but more with my person personal background being half Serbian made me uh, suspicious of the humanitarian justifications of military force for obvious reasons and it was trying to articulate a critique that wouldn't be trapped in wouldn't be trapped in the language of serbian nationalism so this was what led me to the academic career of, engage, you know, an inter, i mean, international relations specialist, and this is what led me into the terrain of critiquing humanitarian intervention because I knew that there was something wrong, and I knew that it had to be articulated in terms that weren't specific to a particular country. And that the problems ran deeper, and that you couldn't criticize it purely from the vantage point of your own kind of national background. So insofar as my thinking has changed, I suppose I would say that it is more, if anything, more committed to the hard politics of of sovereignty and the fact that it comes with particular costs. At the same time, I think, and this is and I think this is a contradiction that is not e- easily resolved. But at the same time, I I mean, my view of sovereignty, the need for sovereignty in the world was what I would classify as third worldist originally, which is to Mm -hmm. say I understood it as something which was important to defend kind of weak and vulnerable countries of what was known as the third world, the non-aligned countries of the Cold War era, formerly colonized countries, that sovereignty was important to defend them. And increasingly, my thinking has become that sovereignty is most important for, in fact, the, the leading, wealthiest and most politically advanced states, which is Western states. So it's shifted from an anti to under, from a politics of anti-imperialism to a politics which understands, or I'd like, i hope at least, that it is committed to a deeper concept of the need for popular self-rule and government self-determination in the world at large. And so the, it's an abstract answer to your question, but it's the best I can give off the top of my head in terms of the how my, poli, how my political views have changed since uh, the launch of the war on terror in 2001. And then with the changing of left and right. So the best way I can put it is this is, as I mentioned, Brexit earlier, is that you had a dramatic with with the vote to leave the European Union. In 2016, in Britain, you had a dramatic break with the status quo mm-hmm. that opened up all sorts of political possibilities. It was championed by con- this uh, radical shift was championed by conservatives and opposed by socialists, mm-hmm. those who characterise themselves as socialists. And there you had, you know, a basic a flip of the political polarities that you had conservatives championing change. Not for reasons I think they fully understood themselves, but nonetheless, it was the case that they were the ones championing change and socialists who were and I mean, this can't be stressed enough, I think, rapidly defending the status quo mm-hmm. with the most visceral attachment to defending the you know, actually existing institutions of neoliberalism. And so I think, you know, that kind of, that has, that flip has been most, it's evident throughout the Western world to some degree, but it's been most sharply expressed, I think, in British politics as a result of the peculiar conditions of Britain's withdrawal from the European Union. And I think that is the, but it's the broader insight, I think, into politics in the developed world as a whole is the fact that it is the left that seems to me most deeply committed to the status quo. Mm-hmm. Whereas the right is, you know, for reasons that are not, you know, that I don't support on the whole, but it seems the right is more open to the possibility of political change and asserting, asserting the interests of democracy. It's an opportunist, you know, it's for their own kind of interests and for the interests of power and wealth frequently that they champion the cause of democracy because they can use it against the left, which is abandoned democracy and abandoned the idea that political change in itself is worthwhile and that political change can be entrusted to the masses. And so the, that's the most imp- drastic and important shift in the politics of left and right in recent time, I think, is that flip in political polarity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have noticed similar things here. I would also say that I, it seems it's like, it's sad to say this and I feel sort of crazy saying it, but I've become convinced that it is true that as you say, there's plenty of opportunism on the right. All the caveats apply here, but I have found it easier to discuss hard politics and publish in right-wing <laughs> publications without too much editorial interference for that reason, but also because there is simply the belief that society should continue. Yes. And that instead of catastrophism reigns supreme on yeah. the left, that turns into a reactionary defense of the status quo. Yeah. It's frankly heartbreaking. Yeah. To have watched and I did
1: And I think this is visible in the most kind of tangible and immediate way in the politics of lockdown, Mm -hmm. where you had very much the case of socialists who were effectively against society, socialists defending with the telling, you know, terms themselves defending social distancing opposed to, you know, the maintenance of certain basic social functions. I mean, like education, Mm -hmm. you know, the inability of Westerns, the wealthiest, most technologically sophisticated societies in human history to maintain basic socialization for their own offspring for our own children you know that seems to me like you say just an inability to think in any meaningful social holistic terms on the part of liberals and the left in mm-hmm. particular and that yes so that political polarity was evident has been evident in the co in the period of the covid lockdowns as well
0: so i have one last question for you here though i could probably talk to you for much longer and One of the things that I like to ask guests when they come on, not always, but often, is what type of thinking or reading or something that they saw more of? For example, are there authors that you would recommend to people for helping us understand our times? Is there perhaps a concept you think is highly revelatory? I know you guys are deep, great fans of Jacques Ranciere, and he features heavily in your book. We've done episodes on some of his essays, so that sort of question.
1: Yeah, it's it's a tricky one. I don't think we're particularly well served by you know our kind of uh, current crop of intellectuals. No, indeed. Yeah. Well, quite. So it's always a bit of a struggle, I suppose. I mean, I would say the you know I think with you know all the usual caveats, I think Giorgio Gambin, for all of his for all of his sins and they are many, he has nonetheless been more alert, I think, to authority. You know the kind the. The contemporary form that authoritarianism takes and also uh, even further in his understanding of the disintegration of the very idea of public power mm-hmm. and so he developed this concept of uh, destituent power in contrast to constitute the constituent power the kind of the idea of the of society as or i suppose a populace as a constituent power that's able to Generate its own political institutions, constitutions and political in you know institutions and states and so on. that old that idea, which has been the underpinning of of modern social and political life, that we create our own societies, you know the idea of the social contract. That we're all bound by these reciprocal rights and responsibilities, which we freely enter into. He's uh, developed this idea of this kind of disintegrative form of authority, which he calls destituent power, and as well as his critiques of the lockdown. So despite all the problems with both, um, I think they are um, stimulating and important. And mm-hmm. I think he is, you know, his insight is worth Developing and perhaps and probably developing against his own judgments, because there are all sorts of kind of idiosyncrasies and problems with the way in which he formulates some of these ideas. But nonetheless, I think uh, productive.
0: Okay, well, great. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, this was a delight. I'd love an excuse to have you back on.
1: Well, thanks so much, Ahmed. I mean, I've really enjoyed it. I would love to come back on, and hopefully we'll get you on to the Bung, on to Bunga cast too. And we can talk more there too.
0: I'd enjoy that very much. Okay guys, stay safe out there. Have a good one. Take it, baby. take it, baby, take it. Ready to go Rapping for the top is when it's ready to grow. Rapping for the top is when it's ready to grow. Rapping for is